Welcome to the Leadership Network Podcast. Leadership Network is a community of multipliers who gather to collaborate, innovate, and pursue what God has next for His church. Our mission is to champion healthy growth that is capable of reproducing. Thank you for joining this conversation, and here's today's episode. Welcome to the Microchurch Next podcast hosted by Leadership Network. You're listening to a podcast today that was originally recorded as a webinar. So if you're interested in not only hearing this content, but seeing some interaction with the speakers, you can go to leadnet.org forward slash microchurch dash next to find out more and to see the videos, to see articles and to track with us at Leadership Network as we explore the microchurch paradigm. Well, hey, and welcome back to part two of a two-part webinar series that we are hosting with Leadership Network and the Microchurch Next channel. I'm Brian Johnson, one of your guides through this, and here with Rob Wegner, another one. And of I'm the- Doug Paul. There it is. We talked yeah. about the podcast voice, and you just the brought podcast it. voice. That's actually Doug's beard that's speaking right now. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, my lips are moving, but it's the beard that's speaking. <laughs> I'm in. <laughs> hey, so right, we're not going to make this weird. What are we doing today, Brian? What are we going to talk about? We've recorded part one where we explored the state of the microchurch in the West and primarily from one angle, which is how did we get here? Mm-hmm. Uh, so how, how do we get multiple microchurch networks in the same room together? And then when we got in the same room together, what did we do for a year? So we we got about 45 minutes in and realized wow, we should probably make this two parts and come back and talk about the barriers that we began to explore together as friends on mission, as this new kind of family was emerging. Uh, So today, let's get into the barriers. Let's talk about how we discovered them, what they are, and then how we began to address, uh, you know, what we might do about those. We we talked about this uh, just before we started. Um, as we're kind of prepping for this, like we don't have answers to all these. Um, so like if you're hopping on today and you're thinking, oh, it's all the, the title was barriers to microchurch and you think you're going to get some answers. You've come to the wrong radio station. <laughs> except this is they doom can, and gloom. No, except they can all. see your face, Doug. So. <laughs> Although we, we do have some hopeful signposts and there are we, some, we have some examples we can point to. But yes, there's not going to be a three point. Uh, by the implementation package to get the breakthrough on the barrier. <laughs> yeah, totally. Hey, so if you haven't downloaded the state of the microchurch um, PDF that you, you should have access to a, 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 at least a month ago, but now you can download it again if you want. I just want to read one sentence that might be helpful in framing it up. So to understand the significance of these barriers, one must first understand that microchurches emerge from disciple making. And the networks in the room have a shared commitment to kickstart a pure missionary endeavor via ordinary people who are planting the gospel, making new disciples among unreached pockets of people. So the clear priority is to decrease lostness through disciple making. Uh, So just to put some of that into context is like these were important to us. We didn't just throw out some ideas. Uh, We really spent a lot of time on trying to discover what are the, the things we're running into. Um, and why are they so important? So I'm going to kick it over to Doug to talk about 
how we went about discovering this together. Yeah, I I think the way that we wanted to do it was to have like an honest conversation about where these different networks were at. Remember, there there you'll remember from our the first webinar, there are fourteen networks that are in the room of varying degrees of maturity, but for the most part, um, networks that have existed for a chunk of time and have seen some really exciting multiplication happen um, and have grown and expanded. And so I, I think it's important to say that the reason for that, just to, to highlight that again, I think, um, is we're not talking about something that's a flash in the pan. We're talking about something that's been a, around a while. And so you've got seasoned veteran leaders within this movement reflecting on the things that they've created, um, or at least partnered with the Lord to create. And so the way that we did this is we we had you know a couple networks at each table, and it started first with table discussions where each table was identifying the the three biggest barriers that they were facing, um, maybe four, and then what we did is we crowdsourced a list um, from the entire room of all of the barriers that each table was bringing to the front, and really when you looked at it, there were nine basically nine buckets of different barriers. And then the sort of the way that we we ended the time was we created what's called a heat map where every person got a certain number of dots and they they distributed their dots among the nine different choices as to what they felt like were the three biggest barriers that we were collectively experiencing within microchurch networks. And so the the PDF that we wrote that we wrote um, and put together between Catapult and Leadership Network is what those three biggest barriers were that the room brought to the table and then the room, you know, kind of coalesced around. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So let's get into the barriers. Then. I feel like yeah. people are probably hanging on to the edge of their seat going, what are they? Stop what talking. are they, Brian? <laughs> well, we hit barrier three. number one. We don't have enough volunteers for first impressions. <laughs> Sorry. Barrier, barrier number two. We don't so have sad. enough children's ministry workers. <laughs> All right. Let's be kind. There's probably a lot of people. <laughs> that are paying I'm not being unkind. I know. There's not a mean this spirit. Is, that's real. I, just having fun, man. <laughs> I know. I know. <laughs> so the first one that we addressed is leadership development. And multiplication? Indeed. That's correct. You like how I put a question mark on that to see if everyone agreed with what I was saying? Well, I've also got the document open and the document agrees with you. (laughs) I had a moment of hesitation where I was like, that is it, right? (laughs) (laughs) So uh, let me put a little narrative into that. I think what um, networks have seen happen a lot is um, or an ordinary person or a couple ordinary people who get a lot of clarity on a context they're called to. And they go all in. They begin to live very deep relational incarnational rhythms there. Um, they become a very strong gospel presence. Um, they're loving and with uh, without an agenda except to Um, be the love of Jesus and that establishes credibility and uh, 
and they're really demonstrating what the kingdom looks like with their lives and meaningful conversations begin to happen. Then there's overt gospel conversations and new disciples are, are being made. And as disciples begin to add up and there's two or three or there's four or five of them, now there's this new extended spiritual family. And sometimes it's very proximate in terms of geography. It's like, oh, it's this two blocks of this neighborhood. And sometimes it's more like an affinity group, like the incarcerated or the homeless or artists. Um, But there's a new simple expression of the church that begins to have regular rhythms in life together around community, living into the one another commands together around mission. Like we're going to make the kingdom tangible and we're going to make new disciples and around worship. It's all about coming under the Lordship of Jesus in every area of life. Um, and so what's, what we can celebrate is um, we are way, 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 way past proof of concept. Like ordinary people will make disciples and micro churches do emerge. Yeah. Like there's literally thousands of microchurches in America, which is amazing. And uh, I mean, just, we didn't actually sit down and tally it up, but if you added the number of microchurches that were represented in that room, it's very encouraging. It's like ordinary people will do this stuff. So if you're a church leader and you're wondering if this is possible, I just want to say, yes, 100%, this can happen in your community, in your neighborhood. So that's happening like crazy. Led by everyday people. Led by everyday people. Is, I think that's a really important thing. It's it's not that there aren't smart people who had previously been full-time vocational pastors involved, but that's not who it's really being mm-hmm. led by and touched by. It's everyday missionaries who are just just extraordinary, extra, extraordinarily ordinary, ordinary Christians. Yeah. Yes. Super exciting. Now, th- now we're going to get into the barrier. Uh, so if you look at movements around the world, um, again, we're, we're not looking at this from just sort of a statistical uh, mathematic motivation. We're looking at this from a family point of view. Every family wants to hopefully have children, have children, have children. That's pretty normal. And that's Jesus plan. And if you look at movements around the world, uh, you're going to see a lot of multi- multiple generational kind of families. There were in movements in places like India and China and Africa, where you're talking 10, 20, 30 generations sometimes, um, in multiple strands going lots of different directions. Where we're at in the microchurch movement in America is there's a, there, we're seeing second generation. So that's like, okay, there's a healthy microchurch and, uh, and some people inside of that microchurch are having, um, like a, there's approximate relational network and they're starting to have meaningful spiritual conversations over there. And this community is supporting them as a new microchurch emerges in another relational network. That's uh, that this couple or these three or four people are called to sent to a part of. So uh, that's a beautiful story that is uh, represented in most of those microchurch networks where they're seeing second generation reproduction, where the real barrier is like across the board. People are saying we see very little reproduction beyond that, like third, fourth, fifth, sixth, seventh, eighth generations 
of reproduction seems to be very unusual. And I think there's a, an agreement that the pattern in second Timothy two, two of four generations on multiple strands is a really healthy vision that every microchurch looks at and goes, yep, that seems like that would be the bare minimum of health. You know, um, why aren't we seeing that? Why aren't we seeing what's happening in places like Africa and China and India occur here in America? If it's the same God everywhere, that's the barrier. The barrier is like, hey, we see a lot of first and gen, first and second gen reproduction. We're not seeing much third, fourth, fifth, sixth, seventh generation reproduction. It is like categorically different than um, leadership development within maybe another model. Like I know you started joking when we first brought up leadership development and multiplication, like you guys dropped a couple of volunteer things out there. And it's like, I think there's a lot of people listening who are like, yeah, yeah, that's, that's my issue too. I'm not doing micro churches, but I have the same sort of barrier. Like how do I raise up new leaders? But within the predominant model, that leadership development is often, I, I just need someone to fill this role or this space. And it's, it's not thinking third, fourth, fifth generation beyond that. Um, again, n- not trying to be in like a hard critical mode, but I just remember I, 20 years in, in the predominant model, most of our questions were like a leadership pipeline, but it was filling a volunteer role around something. This is categorically different because as Doug pointed out, it's like these are ordinary people that do ordinary jobs, have ordinary lives who are thinking about embracing disciple making in the everyday stuff of life. And they're going like, I have a desire, a deep burden to see that multiple generations happen. Like, how do I do this? Well, I don't, I don't want to just fill another volunteer role. I want to multiply disciples in my neighborhood or multiply disciples in my network of relationships. So it is, it's a very different thing that we're talking about when we say leadership development and multiplication. Can we talk, can we toss out theories? Like how, how are we doing this? Can I, can I toss out like an unspoken theory? I'm here for it. And y'all can tear it to shreds. <laughs> um, well, I don't, I don't know that I'm right, but I'm just thinking about like a lot of the places where you see movements that, you know, that we're looking at, not exclusively, but for the most part are in very pre-Christian places. Um, and I, I do feel like one of the challenges for getting past like second generation um, disciple making, as well as the multiplication of uh, microchurches, is every generation, whether you grew up in the church or not, like they have expectations of what, quote, church is. Um, like you don't have to be a Christian at all. You could have grown up in three generations of atheists, but if you swim in the Western waters, there's a sense of what church is. And it means that every single generation, you have to unwind and do the unlearning and the shift of the paradigm of what this thing even is. And paradigm shifting is hard and it takes time. Whereas in pre-Christian places, it's they, they don't even know what you're talking about because it's like what you're exposing them to, it's the first time that they've even been exposed to what it is that you're talking about. It's not just the gospel. It's the first time they've even heard of church yeah. in the way that you're talking about. So I wonder if like some of this is the longevity factor, like how long paradigms take to break and shift and how with each successive generation you have to do it again. Yeah. 
I think that's I mean, for, all that church memory, you know, and, and yeah. different parts yeah, yeah. Of, of our country, there's a stronger church memory. And when I say we, I got that phrase from you, Doug. So <laughs> um, it is important to pay attention to that. I, I, I wouldn't discount or rip that to shreds. I think it's a really important point to pay attention to when we talk about second, third and fourth. Like we're still doing the work in there. The other angle I would put on it is globally in these other contexts where we're going, we want to see that same thing happen here. Um, the relational networks are much different than our own. Like we live in a very disintegrated, disintegrated kind of relational world where um, we don't have multiple generations of families that live close together and value it that way. And so when you see, you know, a global context where the relational networks are a lot tighter and there's multiple generations of families that already exist together, you will see the gospel move faster in those because of the dynamics that are there. We have to work hard to rebuild familial structures in a Western context. So that's another angle that is important in it as well. There's two things that stand out to me. Oh, but to underscore what you're saying, Brian, that's absolutely true. There's a lot of relational context where people are almost becoming the person of peace. Like I'm thinking about a, uh, a couple in the underground last week, they've been on mission in their context. It's a suburban neighborhood, very faithful for three years. And they just had a discovery group start where they're having like over spiritual and gospel conversations with their neighbors. And I, and I don't know if they did anything wrong. <laughs> like I think they've been faithful yeah. and just kind of slowly plotting, building uh, a, a new family and a new relational network. Um, and it's amazing. Like I do want to celebrate that kind of faithfulness. It's, in the life of an ordinary person is just amazing where we have seen multiple generations and things move quickly. It's I know in the underground, we've really had one part of the underground that's been very multiplicative, which has been the incarcerated and the formerly incarcerated. Right. And, uh, and things have, we've seen things move really fast in the jail system, for example, where it's like one discovery group, woo, every pod in the Johnson County jail system in a few months. Um, which is, again, gets back to kind of proof for what you're saying, Brian. It's like there is a relational network there that's intense and close and proximate. Yeah. The, the other thing I bring up is um, there's been this pattern, and I heard, I heard about it from Alex Absalon probably 10 years ago. He's gonna, he said, you're going to see a lot of microchurch networks that get to maybe three microchurches or maybe upwards of five. And then it stalls out. Um, and then at the other side of the bell curve starts to happen and some of the micros start disappearing. And one of the things that uh, we've tried to be intentional about in the Kansas City Underground is building what we call hub teams. And hub teams are help break through that natural barrier of the three to five. And a hub team is a it's a team of equippers that are committed to the apostolic mission of God's people. And they exist for the purpose of helping everyday people and the microchurches that have emerged stay faithful to be on mission and to continue to multiply. And uh, what we've noticed is when you begin to see 
you know, first, second generation of, of the gospels breaking through into lostness and these new families are emerging. Once you get to about three or five microchurches, God will have already raised up that team of equippers. And then what we do is we have a four month training where we're meeting with them every week. We have an online coaching platform, like a course where they get the content. So when we're together, it's about support, accountability, coaching, contextualization. Um, And we've gone from one hub team to 10 and we're training two other ones right now. And I think that's one of the things that God has really poured his favor out on in Kansas city. And we've been training people in other cities so we trained a team in Boise and they doubled the number of micro churches in their city last year. And I think having the hub team and the hub framework was a big part of that. Um, so I think that's one of the emerging solutions. The other one that um, I see is really for, uh, in a very serious way that I feel is unique Uh I know this is true for the underground and it's true for a number of the networks that were in that room. We are looking to the church outside the Western world to be our mentors, Amen. to be our coaches, to be our equippers. And we are intentionally building like long-term relationships with movements to learn from them. Um, and I thought I would kind of pitch it back to Doug to talk about um, Josh, for example, like we brought in, um, you know, a practitioner to, um, kind of unpack how they're getting to 30 gens of multiplication on all these trains. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, we, we brought in, um, Josh who he, he is, Josh Howard. From, yeah, he, he's from the United States, um, married an Indian woman, um, whose father was, or still is, uh, leading a significant, uh, work in central India. And, one of the things that Josh has kind of brought to that team and then like really unpacked and discovered things that were happening in India was like generational disciple making. Mm-hmm. And so one of the things that we were able to do with him was just to bring him on um, as someone who understands Western culture, uh, doesn't live there anymore, but understands it and is seeing extraordinary, like 30 generations plus of disciple making happening in central India. Um, just being able to listen, like, what are they saying? What are they learning? What are the barriers that he thinks a Westerner would face based on his unique understanding at the intersection points of being in a place where movement is happening, but also being from a place where movement is not happening Mm -hmm. and what some of the unique barriers were. So I think that was a really rich time with him. Um, Yeah. And I, I just think there's there's a lot of opportunity. I think Winfield Bevins, we didn't, we didn't get to spend time with him, but he's another one who's, done, who's doing the research on this around things that are popping and happening in the American church um, and why there is reason to be hopeful when it comes to multiplication. Not that we're there, but there, is, there are bright spots happening on the edges. Yeah, and I think when you look into some of the networks in the room, you're beginning to see that, right? Like we're we're beginning to see like the the first sort of breakthroughs of it as we pay attention to these global leaders and we ask them to coach us and hold us accountable to those things. But it's still something that, you know, barrier wise is right in front of us. And we'll hit a few more of these as we go, uh, just highlighting who we brought in, why they were coaching us. 
Because that's an important piece is through this learning community, we're trying to bring in practitioners that are ahead of us to say, okay, these are barriers. We know we're not going to fully address them. We know we're not going to walk away with the silver bullet or all the answers, but we're at least going to aim to to move the needle, if you will. So can I give one other example, Brian? Yeah, for sure. This is like a, a tangible expression. So one of the movements we're related to that's in Africa, I was meeting they basically get updated with one of their leaders and they broke open the gen mapper, which is a data tracking tool that they're using with all of their leaders. And it was very convicting because <laughs> it's like they can go into like, all right, here's where the 300 different expressions of the church are. And here's each of the leaders. And then here's what they're tracking inside of every single micro and the multiple generations of disciple making and leaders. So that, for example, like I've, I've brought that to our team to say, we may, we may need to move this direction. Like the re one of the reasons, for example, they're seeing multiple generations is because they're using a, this kind of framework to drive all their coaching conversations. Yeah. Cause it, it's not like those leaders are out there like filling out that stuff on the computer. They have this amazing ongoing coaching. Right. Right. And in the coaching conversations, they're going through all these key habits and practices of multi-generational disciple makers and multi-generational development of leaders, you know, um, and seeing that kind of intentionality modeled. I do think, uh, we are finally in a place because we're a decentralized network where a tool like that makes sense for us. And we're at a place in our journey. And that's why I, I am hopeful. I'm like, we're still at the front end of this movement. It's just barely getting started. And I think five, 10 years from now, there's going to be more and more movements that can look at their example and go, this is actually relevant to what we're doing. Like we can actually apply this now, but we've had to sort of break out of the predominant, forms that we've been used to. And like you're saying, Doug, there's a ton of deconstruction that has to happen yeah. before we can even receive that level of coaching. It's like, we've been going as long as we have, and now we can actually look at that and go, okay, I think we can receive that level of coaching now. See what I mean? Yeah. yeah. I mean, the last thing I'd say, and then we've got to get to the next two and probably move at a faster clip uh, is, is I'm going to guess the coaching that Brian would give at this point. Um, I think one of the things that is that you see over not just India, but like in places where whether that is um, Pakistan or Nepal, um, some of the things that's happening in Thailand and some other places is there's like all of these, all, all the trigger points for multiple generations are happening when people come to know Jesus. It's not discipling already Christians. It's discipling people who don't know Jesus yet. Mm -hmm. And then when they become a Christian, they immediately tell them what's normal. Mm -hmm. And what's normal is everyone plants a church. Yeah. Now they don't mean church like the steeple and budgets mm -hmm. and everything, but it's like everyone has an extended spiritual family that they're leading when they come to faith in Jesus. And they establish immediately from second one, here's what it means. You get to be a church planner. And they've been able to set up with someone who's coming to know Jesus for the first time, exactly what is expected. And I don't mean that in like a, and they're trying to earn their salvation way. I mean, it's a culture setting thing because culture is whatever is normal for a group of people. That's right. And they're just telling them like, hey, let me tell you what's normal. We plant churches, everyone. That's what it means to be a Christian. Yeah. 
That's so good. That's such a great point. I'm glad you brought that up. All right, let's go to barrier two. Uh, so this one is all about emotional health. And <laughs> once again, we're talking about something that it, this spans models, but <laughs> let's talk about it from the microchurch paradigm. So we would say that, you know, this is many people are experiencing stress, trauma, mental illness, and will often turn to their microchurch leader and family first. And so that's something that's important to us. But let's crack this one open a little bit more. Um, we landed on mental health. Everyone's talking about emotional health, mental health. How do we grow up in this? So I'm going to kick it back to Doug. Let's go into the emotional health one for a little bit. Well, I think the thing that we we named and addressed is... You know, when, when these conversations were happening, it was it was in the thick of some major dominoes falling within like the prevailing model church of like very famous leaders. Um, and that isn't stopping. That is going to continue. Uh, but I think one of the things that marked the conversations was simply to say, we're, we're, microchurch networks, um, by virtue of like the their decentralized nature, there is a certain protection around the celebrity and platform piece of it but the the overall like anxiety and polarization that people feel and the friction that people feel in their relationships because of those things is just as present like those are the cultural waters we all swim in and so if we're not forming not just leaders but everyone in micro churches in what it looks like to be emotionally healthy and mentally healthy, physically healthy, spiritually healthy, they will be like, they're going to be subject to all of the discipling powers of the prevailing culture, not just the prevailing church, the prevailing culture that we swim in. And that's a barrier. Like it's really all the anxiety that we've seen skyrocket during COVID and post COVID is still very present. And the microchurch networks are not yeah. immune to that. I would I would put this in the context too. Again, we're talking about um, everyday people who are saying, "I, I want to see the lostness in my city decrease. I want to make disciples in the everyday stuff of life." And for so much of our history, it's just been about like disciple making has been about the content that you know. Um, and so we're trying to say like, you also need to bring your heart into this. And if you're talking about reproducing disciples. You need to reproduce healthy disciples. And it's not just about the head knowledge they have. It's about holistic disciple making. It's about physical health. It's about spiritual health. It's about relational health. And it's about emotional health. And it's that, like, that's the one piece we've probably left out for so long. And so, like, this was an important one because it's like, if we don't reproduce healthy disciples within healthy families, we're going to reproduce some really, I don't know, this is good Christian language, like really jacked up stuff. <laughs> you know, like if they're not growing in, in relational emotional health, a couple of generations down the line, if we break through that first barrier and we're not addressing this one, we're going to be way off the quote unquote rails there. Mm -hmm. Yeah. The one of the things that was very moving to me was there was um, a few of the networks that were sharing about um, some very deep deeply painful moments in the history of their network where there was high levels of tension and conflict um, that were very intense. 
And I think part of their reflection was it wasn't really about like spiritual or intellectual immaturity. It was emotional and relational immaturity that was really the source. Um, and I, I think looking back, whether what, no matter what form of the church it is, if it's micro, it's predominant. I, I think that's genuinely, uh, generally true. Like I look at my history and I think um, it's very possible to be a person who's 35 or 40 years old um, intellectually and, uh, and even spiritually. I mean, the, the, the fluency that you have is very high, but emotionally you can still be a seven-year-old. And in certain areas, like you get it, when it begins to intersect your trauma, your pain, the dysfunction of the family system that you grew up in, suddenly it's like, I'm, I'm seven years old again. I'm using my coping skills that I used to, you know, to try to survive, you know? And I think there was a, again, an agreement across the board that uh, there has to be a basic skill set of training around emotional maturity on how to feel your feelings, how to tell your truth, how to have language to describe the different emotions you're feeling, to have tools uh, in communities, um, to learn how to be in, how to validate, how to be present, um, how to create smaller spaces, like three to five spaces where people can do more of the work on identifying where they've got stuck and where they've got traumatized. And that we also need to have this um, connection and fusion with resources beyond the microchurch. And that could be everything from uh, training huddles to help microchurches be emotionally healthy communities to professional counseling, uh, trauma certified therapists, uh, spiritual directors. And there's a number of the networks, and we're included in this, where we're trying to build that kind of ecosystem. So that um, that kind of training and backup for the microchurch is there where they're getting the basic skills to be in an emotionally healthy community. Um, but if they if it needs to like scale up to a therapeutic level, we built relationships with counselors, for example, that we trust and get what we're doing with microchurch. It's not a completely foreign thing to them. Um, so there's a lot of networks right now that are looking at that and going, that's not optional. That's not like, you know, that that's something that's bonus. It's like, no, wholehearted discipleship is essential. So one of the things that we did, um, and this is one of the resources and that we would, we would point you to. And then I think we need to um, probably move to the, the next one. The next barrier uh, is we had Jeff Vanderstelt. He, he was part of this group a lot of you familiar with Jeff and his work on uh, gospel fluency or saturate and a whole, whole, whole host of other things, but obviously was uh, one of the founders of Soma, uh, which is a microchurch network that has kind of spread, I think it's in like two or three continents now, actually. Um, but he's been on a journey around this. And so we got to spend just a lot of time hearing his journey. I mean, like just to, I mean, I'm not going to say anything that he hasn't said, but I mean, like, he was working directly under Bill Hybels. You might have heard of him and some of the things that happened there. And then stepped after after Mars Hill imploded, was there to come in and for several years was was part of like 
what does that look like to undergo that kind of trauma from a leader and then like put the pieces of reconciliation and health back together and just newsflash that's hard hard work and it 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 it's taxing on a leader as well and so just getting to hear his journey to sh- listen to what it is that he has been through how he, the lord has been attending to him in that and then just some of the tools that he's been learning like one of the specifics um is an organization called 10 man um that a lot of lot of pastors and um co-vocational leaders uh, who are, who are Christians have been doing some work with, and I know Jeff is doing not just work with them, but doing some co-writing on some, some tools in a book that's going to come out, I think next year. But I think that was just, it was, it was, I think it was very healthy and healing, not that the healing journey was done, but to just like hear from someone who's undergone a lot, mm. um, and to talk about like what they have learned, the things that they've needed to unlearn as it relates to emotional health, the way that they were leading from a place of emotional brokenness and kind of stepping out of that. So I don't think we are saying like the three of us in this call that we are masters of that journey. We are in the journey yeah, for sure. Um, but it was one, I think one of the highlights for everyone in that particular cohort was just getting to hear from Jeff. Yeah. Yeah. I, I mean, just personally being on that journey, it, a year ago, I would not have told you that this is an important part of it because I didn't even know how unhealthy I was emotionally, relationally. Yeah. Um, and a year into this journey, it's like, I can't imagine anything I want to focus on more the rest of my life than this journey. Mm-hmm. Uh, so I think that, you know, those of us that have been doing the work and continue to do the work would say the same thing. Like, you got to elevate this piece whether you're in the predominant model or the microchurch model or whatever model, this is just an important part of disciple making. Um, but we're highlighting it as one of the three most significant barriers that we're facing. So let's hit the last one. Finances. Financial sustainability and viability. Once um, again, not one that is like unfamiliar to anyone across the board, but it matters in this model as well. Yeah, it's it's what's beautiful about um, what's happening in the microchurch decentralized network world. First of all, um, bivocational and co-vocational is normal. Yeah, um, and so not like only no, normal, no, expected. Yeah, like no one's paying their microchurch leaders in any of these networks to be a pastor of a microchurch. It's all ordinary people. They're engineers, they're butchers, they're bakers, they're candlestick makers, you know, and they're, yeah, and they're like the people in the New Testament. They're like Lydia and her household and Crispus and his household and the jailer and his household. They're, they're leading households of faith. Their networks have become microchurches. Um, And so that gives us a, um, capability to scale. So I I just want to celebrate that's at play and normal. Um, I think the challenge is um, when, when you form a mission agency to support a movement of microchurches, and when you begin to ask the question of, okay, what does this movement need uh, to continue to flourish um, then you get into some more complex financial challenges. 
So it's like, okay, if we're, if we're seeing microchurches scale in the urban core, um, because we love our neighbors and we love our city, we are now engaged with all the issues that are in the urban core. And, and if we're looking at serious, sustained and like lasting impact, okay, we don't, microchurches don't want to ignore that. Like microchurch movements want to get engaged in that. So I think that's where we get into, okay, what are these, okay, how are we going to generate income to address these kind of problems <laughs> that have significant depth and, and size to them? And, and unlike the predominant model church, it's like, well, we don't have most, most of these microchurch networks. There's no like weekend service. We're bringing everybody together and we're collecting offerings. It's all decentralized. So a um, couple other observations. Most of the microchurches, that, as best as I can tell, almost all of them, everybody owns the cost of mission in their context. So we're unleashing unparalleled generosity. It's just not going into some nonprofits uh, basket. Are you, are you tracking with me? So like we have ordinary people funding mission and they're not even getting a tax donation for it. So that's another thing I want to just bring to the surface to celebrate, because if we worry about like, well, someday that they're going to pull our, you know, nonprofit status, we're not going to get the donations. Like my, a lot of the microchurch networks are like, well, a lot of our people aren't getting that now anyway. We're, we're okay with that. That's a good thing. I just want to bring that to the surface and say, yes, you know, but back to these other issues, um, I think everyone is looking and going, okay, there's always going to be charitable giving and we want, we want to cultivate that. But the other big factor is um, how do we be in the marketplace in a meaningful way? And we're, we're there uh, not as some kind of ulterior motive or something. Like we just want to be a part of our, the economy in our city and we want to see our city flourish and a lot of the microchurch networks are asking, especially where there's been uh, a lack of equity, like the urban core, like how do we help the places that have been forgotten and the people that have been left behind have access. And so it's, um, it's this issue of like, for example, with can't see underground, like how do we have a common person city we have multiple hub teams and multiple networks, but we can move resources from this part of the network to this part of the network and not just as charitable giving, but like, no, we want to help start and sustain and scale uh, businesses in the marketplace. So I've been doing all the talking. I'm going to be quiet now. I want to throw it back to Brian or Doug. I'm just trying to paint a picture of like what that conversation was like and the different, you know, parts of it that were happening. Yeah. I mean, I would say even some of the, it's a it's a it's a really big giant complex conversation if for no other reason than different microchurch networks have different visions mm -hmm. for what their microchurch like what how their microchurch intersect like the marketplace or the economy or the urban core or whatever it is mm -hmm. and what they're calling within that, even at a, like a theological level, an ecclesiological level. Yes. Are. Yeah. And so it is complex. Um, because you, we're having 
I'm not saying we're having deep, long conversations around macroeconomics, but there are things that are like are informing some of those conversations that make it um, make it. I think not, this is not a simple solve, and I think we are very much on the infancy of, of figuring this particular thing out. I, I do think. This is going to be one where we're going to need, and like we brought in um, three different people that we heard from on this topic. One was Myron Pierce, one was Jason Shepard, who's down in Houston, um, and another uh, Tyler, who is uh, with Brave Cities, uh, and Hugh Halter are, are doing some things around that. There, there are some other good thinkers around this you, you should be thinking about as well. There's a, there's um, uh, a, a Jay Moon at Asbury has done some great writing and thinking on this. And I think they even developed some coursework there as well as um, Mark DeMoz obviously would be a really great thought leader with this. It is, they're, they're going to probably be, if I were to guess, five to 10 different models mm-hmm. of this. There isn't going to be one. It's going to be a, like a multiplicity, multiplicity of models, multiplicity. Let's all say it together. Um and it's not going to be in. It's not going to be an easy one. But I think from the beginning we have to. This is going to be one where we really have to talk about metrics differently mm-hmm. and impact differently. And to 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 Rob's point on like the tracking thing, like uh, two years ago we tried to track, like in some of the ways that we're doing this within our network, um, like what what is the financial impact? Because what we're trying to do is create in some ways like a different kind of safety net with finances as people are caring for people, when, when we say like they have everything in common, what does that mean? Mm-hmm. And like, what are ways that we can help people do that in an easy way? And we were able to track just in a three-month period, $170,000 in giving that was going between people and or micro churches to each other. And these like crossing networks, none of which had anything to do with the 501c3. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Like there's no middleman. It was people giving to people or people giving to projects using whether that was Kickstarter or a whole host of like digital platforms. Just Venmo. <laughs> yeah. Or like, like our, our that, network that was, this last we, week. We didn't include, for us, we weren't even including Venmo. We were trying to just track specific things that people were swarming around on digital right, platforms right. online. Like our network of micros here in this area, there's a family that had a house burnt down and one of the microchurches rallied the other microchurches Let's help this family. Here's the list of needs. Send your money here. Buy these gift cards. That doesn't show up on the Kansas City Underground spreadsheet anywhere. It yeah. doesn't. And that's yeah. what's happening all the time. Yeah. And so it's, and I'm not saying, we're not saying that's not happening in the prevailing model. Yeah, Definitely yeah. Right, not. Right, right, right. Just, just to be clear. But I think as we think about the expenses are different. Mm-hmm. And so that means like, obviously the metrics are going to be different. What we're, encur- what we're encouraging people to give to, how we're encouraging people to give, where we're encouraging people to give is very different in microchurch networks. Yeah. And so how we measure that and like sort of like the kingdom quotient or impact of that giving will be radically different. And so we have to actually think about that from the outset, or we're going to, we're going to be evaluating those five to 10 models that we're unpacking, looking at probably with an, with an unfair lens. Like mm-hmm. we can't take the prevailing model yeah, yeah. and then apply it to this new one and be like, well, what is going on? It's like, well, it's a very different thing. Yeah, so yeah. we're going to have to, we're going to have to be, I think pretty shrewd in how we think about that, but there's a lot of work to be done in this area. Hey, one of the things that we want 
everybody who's watching today to know is as we roll through this year in the micro church next conversation that's hosted by leadership network is we're going to do additional work on all of these. Uh, we'll have podcasts, we'll have articles, we'll have webinars. We're going to bring in some of those uh, practitioners that are breaking new ground. So we just hope you tune, tune in this year, um, stay a part of the conversation. Um, and we hope to be a great resource to you. Just want to pass that on. Yeah, totally. And thanks for joining us for both of these. Hopefully join us for both. You can go back and watch the first one if you didn't. Um, but yeah, this is the state of the microchurch in the West, at least one angle on it with quite a few networks that have said, this is what got us to where we are. This is what we're facing. And if we can break through some of these significant barriers, then we think that we can enter into a new day with this uh, that is normative. And we'll see new barriers. We'll face new things. Um, but at least we can solve some of the or maybe not solve, but begin to address some of these critical things that may slow us down or, or try to stop that movement. So thanks, Doug, for taking time to be with us. If you're thinking to yourself, man, I want more. I want to dive into this. I want to understand more. You can join one of the learning communities that we're hosting this year. You go to leadnet.org forward slash microchurch dash next scroll down you can uh, register for one of those learning communities and as rob said we hope that you'll continue to join us through this year pay attention to the articles the webinars the podcasts that we host we'll take these barriers that we talked about today and we'll go deeper um, so yeah that's it grace and peace thank you for listening to this episode of the leadership network podcast and joining the conversation for what is next for the church and its leaders we look forward to connecting with you as we bring our questions, contribute our wisdom, and pursue what is next. Visit leadnet.org for more resources, information about leader cohorts, and more. That is leadnet.org.